Welcome back, everybody, to the North American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Dylan Baker, and this week we will be returning to MLS conversation. I know we've been we've been dancing around it almost like we don't want to, but trust me, we're back, we're on topic, we're on brand, and we've got uh, a special guest with us today who's going to bring uh, a unique perspective. Uh, joining me, as always, is Chris Smith. Chris, uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. And joining Chris and I today is Phil Blacker. Now, Phil Blacker is a soccer commentator for IMG, Sky Sports, Talk Sport Live, Gravity Media, and several others. He's done many matches live on both TV and radio, including Premier League matches, MLS, Champions League, and two World Cups. He's been in the business since he was 16 after winning the BBC Radio Young Commentator of the Year Award, a fact which I absolutely had to include in this introduction after I found out about it. I didn't think contests like that even existed. He's currently based out of London, and despite having several listed affiliations at the beginning of this intro, is still an excited freelance commentator available to anyone looking for an experienced head in the press box or at the mic. Phil, after that long, lengthy, long-winded welcome, how are you, bud? Yeah, very well, Dylan. You've uh, you've been doing your research. Good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, despite our agenda being a little bit bare bones today. So I do want to kick off straight into it. Phil, as as a commentator, you know, we've got we've we've had we've we've all spoken with journalists. We've all spoken with folks that are inside sports here at WFI, but never really yet anybody from the commentator's perspective. So the first thing that I want to lead off with is uh, tell us what your day to day looks like and, and how how covering the MLS interacts with the rest of the work that you do, considering the time zone difference. One of the pleasures that we have uh, on the show here is Chris, who who deals with similar issues uh, on the journalist side of things. But, you know, I, I know the late nights must affect you as well. So if you can speak to that, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it can work in an advantage in a way that the different kickoff times, because you could cover a match in the afternoon here and then the evening will be will be MLS. The, the time difference does take a little bit of getting used to i mean i had a, a baby son about six weeks ago so the, the early hours aren't a problem at the moment we're kind of getting used to uh, used to that <laughs> I, I understand that problem my friend <laughs> yeah absolutely um but yeah it kind of does go hand in hand really with a lot of the work that we do on, on the european leagues uh, as well just needs the, the body clock to be adjusted a little bit in in terms of a working week, there isn't really such a thing as uh, as a standard one because every week tends to be a little bit different um, depending on, on what bookings you get, what games that you're working on. Uh, at the moment, it, it's all a little bit more up in the air than, than it usually is because MLS obviously only released uh, the first six fixtures and then another three fixtures, so we don't know too far in advance what games we're going to be working on. It, it's similar actually with the English Premier League at the moment because of no fans being in the grounds that the, the games are all live on TV, so they're they're not picking the, the live matches as early as, as they normally would. So it's difficult to plan it in that respect. But but generally, I'll be covering two to three, sometimes four games per week, uh, and then the rest of the week it is spent at home doing the preparation in the office, doing all all the research and trying to fit as much as that in as possible. Uh, in and around the games to make sure that when we go to where, you know, I, I know as much as, as I need to know and have everything ready and uh, available because for, for every game that you cover, I, I mean, it does depend on the match a little bit and how often you've seen the teams. I would try and do a day or two's preparation. Not always possible 
depending on the schedule of matches, but roughly that's about how it works out. And you would probably use during the course of a commentary five to ten percent of the work that you've done. So it can be difficult to know exactly where to you know, focus your attention during that, that research period. But MLS is a good one, I think, in that respect, because there's, there's so much information available. A lot of it is on, you know, on the websites, the video content as well. It, it's all there for us. So it, it's made very, very easy in that respect. And it's also, I think, a good league where you can find stories that are a little bit different, uh, yeah, personal interest stories that, that people might not necessarily know about. I find that more difficult, for example, covering a, a Premier League game because pretty much everybody watching those games knows everything about the players and the teams anyway. And your job as a commentator is almost to know as much as a fan of that team for that particular game. You're not really going to be in a position in the Premier League where you know more than a fan of, of that particular team. But when you cover an MLS, for example, for an international audience, for an English audience in particular, it's a lot easier to find stories that, that people wouldn't necessarily know because they don't have uh, the same level of, uh, of interest. They're watching it more as a, as a neutral, maybe, or they might just afflict on the game, and and they'll be interested to to watch the the teams, but to find out a little bit more about the league. And it, it's quite an advantageous position to be in to be able to impart that sort of uh, of information. It works in other European leagues as well, but the, the information is probably readily available more in MLS than there it is many of the other ones that I work on. I definitely feel you there on the uh, on the hectic schedule, um, sort of in a similar position myself over here, sort of working as a journalist rather than a commentator. But you, you get through the day in the European leagues, and then you've got the prospect of a one a.m. or a three a.m. start coming up for for MLS straight after, and then you're back on it again in the morning afterwards. In, in Europe, it can be a it can be strenuous, and as you say, with the with the current climate, nothing's certain. So. A lot of sleepless nights and a lot of hectic schedules. I think the most interesting sort of contrast to my own situation, which I brought up then, was the amount of preparation that maybe you'd have to put in a, into a game and the different kind of preparation you'd have to put in compared to myself. And obviously, for me, I, I've got the luxury of sitting there with all my stats in front of me and sort of the, the few bits of scouting on, on the team that I've done beforehand covering a game. But I've got that time after the game then to, to write everything up and, and chase up other quotes and other things that I need whereas for you it, it's on the spot it's as it's happening and I can imagine that can bring a whole different set of pressures to it yeah it, there, there are pressures in that respect I guess it's kind of the flip side to, to your situation then because for me once the game is done I'm done and you kind of move on that you put it to one side and, and you move on to, uh, to getting ready for for the next game but that is, I think, part of the appeal for me is, you know, being on the spot, having to call things live. It can be difficult and, and it, you can get things wrong. And of course, it, it does happen. Nobody's, I don't think, ever delivered the, the perfect commentary. It's what everybody aspires to do, but it's almost impossible, if not completely impossible, uh, to achieve over the course of the 90 minutes. But, you know, you can only do what you can do. Uh, the preparation is a key part of that. Uh, and for the, the time that we're on air, you know the 90 plus minutes on air that that is when the adrenaline starts pumping and that's when actually the the kickoff time doesn't really become an issue it's, it's any kind of afterwards that that kicks in because you have the adrenaline of the game and you're live on air and whatever time of day it is however tired you are going into the game that kind of gets put to, to one side usually anyway it, it helps if the game is good of course but um it, it, when, you, when you hang up the mic at the end of the game job done uh, and you look at the clock, and it's four o'clock in the morning, and you've got to drive home. Uh, that's when it kicks in. But uh, but during the game, it's not really a problem. 
Yeah, well, as, uh, as someone who's taught me through plenty of games at three in the morning while I've been covering it, um, <laughs> I can definitely say that you've, uh, you've done a, a good job so far. So That's good to hear. Very good to hear. It was, uh, as I say, it always helps when the, when the game is good. The, the one the other day uh, was really entertaining. <laughs> Some of the defending maybe wasn't necessarily quite so impressive, but from a neutral point of view in the, the SKC Dallas game uh, the other night, uh, it wasn't a, an early morning kickoff, of course, but it was uh, fresh in the memory and, and a hugely entertaining game. And I think we're starting to see a few more of those now with the, the, the season up and running again and, and the game's coming thick and fast. It can go either way, can't it, that sort of, uh, of schedule. But you are reliant on the matches in that respect. And, and so many of them in this league in particular have been really fun to call and it, it certainly helps. So there's a couple of different directions that I want to go from, you know, these sort of opening comments about the day to day. And and the, the first is, as a commentator, how do you both define and and based on that definition, live within the role of what a commentator is in, in, in modern day soccer? It's it seems like it seems like it's a position that is f- from an from an altruistic sort of stepped back point of view, a little bit dated in terms of its role for the game. But on the same token, as a as a fan and as a supporter, it's it's crucial to the experience of the game. I feel I and and I I, I can say first and foremost that I've not run across many commentators, uh, especially for the MLS over here in the States, but also, you know, w- w- with the with the football that I watch abroad as well. I don't run across a whole lot of commentators that I thoroughly enjoy, but I also can't watch I can't watch a game on mute without that sound or or, or without the the commentary available. So being in that environment constantly and interacting with folks who who have heard you speak on uh, on the matches that you've covered Talk to me about why you're interested in this role still after so long with the, you know, with the ease of access that, that folks have to you on social media and the criticism that can come the way of a commentator. Yeah, it's such a subjective role that of a commentator, you know, someone's favorite commentator can be uh, one that, that somebody else can't stand. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're never going to be able to please everybody in that respect. And in terms of social media, I kind of limit my involvement it's a very useful research tool in particular so it's not that you can't be on there but you do have to have a relatively thick skin and and for all the you know the critical comments that that come in other people will enjoy what you're doing and you're probably a lot less likely to actually hear from the people that are enjoying what you're doing it's more the, the negative comments that that get the publicity i guess that's the, <laughs> the way of social mm. media it, it seems isn't it these days um but for me that is that you know that's only a very, very small part of um, of the job. And, you know, it, it's nothing to do with why I, I do the job. Uh, but you do have to find a balance. Um, I do the job because I, I love the sport. You know, I, I love um, broadcasting. And it's all kind of that I've ever really done. You mentioned right at the top winning the Young Commentator of the Year competition whilst I was still at school. And <laughs> I feel in a very fortunate position where I don't really ever think I've done a proper day's work because for mm. me, it, it's what I love doing. And, I was never good enough, remotely good enough to uh, to play to any sort of level. I would have loved to have done, but so the, the kind of next best thing is to tell the people <laughs> that were a lot better than me where they're going wrong. Uh, I've been fortunate to kind of been provided with that platform. But in, in terms of how you approach the job, I think you need to have your own individual style. You can't copy anybody because you'll soon get found out. Having said that, you can take a lot from different commentators, you know, down the years, study the styles, how they, um, how they approach 
certain aspects of, of the game, aspects of, of the commentary, and then you gradually evolve over many, many years, really. I don't think anybody is, is probably the finished article as a commentator. Again, I said before, you, you can't really ever do the perfect commentary. I don't think there's a perfect commentator, but you can have your own style and, and develop that. For me, it, it's very, very different whether you're commentating, and I do both, or on TV and radio. I actually find radio easier in that the audience is a lot more reliant on you, so it can be a lot more descriptive. Uh, if you know, if, if there's not an awful lot going on in the game, yes, you can have conversations if you're lucky enough to, to have a co-commentator as well. Um, but you can always fall back on just telling everybody what's happening, whereas on TV, everybody can see what's happening. Um, so you need other information to be able to add to the picture because everybody can see the picture. So you're trying to provide information around it. But what you don't want to do is, is you know, go too deep into a, a story about something that happened at the training ground or comments that a manager has made when a, a team is suddenly bearing down on goal. Uh, so it can be a very a difficult balancing act in that respect to get that information in without overdoing it and equally without going too far the other way and literally just shouting out names where everybody can, can see who's on the ball. So in TV in particular, it's a difficult skill to get that balance right. Some people will think you're, you're getting there. Other people will listen to the same commentary and have completely the opposite opinion. So it, it is so subjective. And I think everybody in the industry needs to bear that in mind. All you can do is uh, you know prepare for a commentary and deliver a commentary to the best of your ability, how you as a, as a viewer, I guess, yourself w- would want to hear it. Well, and it's funny, too, that you mentioned not only the subjectivity of of not only the commentary itself, but the 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 listeners of the commentary's opinion on the commentary. But but also the fact that, you know, when when you marry that with there's no such thing as the perfect commentary, it it, it that resonates with me quite a bit, because I, as you had mentioned that I'd sat back and, and, and started thinking about some of the games that I've been forced to watch quietly or whatever the case may be. And it's just it's not the same agree or disagree. It's not the same as whenever you get to argue with the commentator that has no idea that you're arguing with them. It, it doesn't feel the same, you know, in much the same way, you know, with radio, you lose the ability to determine for yourself from a subjective standpoint, whether or not that was a foul. You also don't get the chance without the commentary to be able to, to be able to disagree or argue with, with whoever it is that's registering an opinion on it. And that's so much I feel of, of the experience, not only uh, at, at the grounds, but also at home watching. And especially in the world that we're living in right now, where most people are sitting back and watching and have access to that commentary. I feel that it's uh, that's, that's such a, that has to be such an important part of why commentary is still a, a vital part of the footballing experience. I think it is, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a, a key part of the interaction, the experience of watching a game. Thankfully, you know, if it wasn't and if everybody preferred to, to watch the games on mute or whatever, then, then we, there'd be a lot of people in, in this industry out of work. Um <laughs> But it has kind of stood the test of time, hasn't it? So many things in the terms of, of how football is covered have, have developed and, and changed. And, and the other commentary has changed to an extent, but I would certainly argue a lot less so than the, you know, many other features of, of how the, the sport is covered. Uh, generally, there is still somebody there with a microphone at the, the side of the pitch, in, sat in the stands or, you know, in a studio describing the action and, and offering Yes, their opinion at, at times, but equally offering information, trying to, to add to what everybody is seeing and all the different features now, you know, the, the red buttons, the crowd effects, um, they, they all add to it, but none of them have ever replaced 
the commentator, and hopefully they never will. Absolutely. Well, especially considering your unique position of of being being UK based and and growing up around football, and now also commentating on soccer here in the states. Talk to me about code switching. Do you do you bother yourself at all with your commentary in terms of uh, of, of switching back and forth between the terminology that we use here in the states as opposed to what's generally accepted as correct in the in the UK? If you have, has that taken a long time to master, or did you have it down? Have you had it down for such a long time that it just comes naturally at this stage? It's a tricky one, actually. It, it kind of does come naturally now. It, it certainly wasn't always the case. And I've been covering MLS regularly for um, five, six seasons now. 2015 was the first season I got into it on a on a regular basis. Uh, and I mentioned as part of the research, going through all the uh, you know the game guides, the the stat packs, the the information on the, the club websites. And yeah, there is a very clear kind of terminology which was unfamiliar. At the time, uh, it's not now to, to me, but equally, uh, in terms of the audience that I am broadcasting these games to, uh, the international world feed, most of those people, a lot of those people aren't aware of, of the, the difference in terminology either. So I, I will still talk about a squad, for example, rather than a roster because of, of the audience that are, that are listening to these games, whereas um, it, that will be the complete opposite to what I'm reading when I'm doing the research. And uh, there are a few different terms such as that that you would probably steer away from. But I would like to think now, in terms of me personally, I'm fairly uh, aware of you know, most of, of the differences of the codes and the terms, as you say. But it doesn't mean that we should be using them because of who's listening to the game. So that makes it a little bit more difficult in a way because you do have to bear that in mind. And it would be easy to... Um, to slip into speaking about roster spots and and, they, and the audience wouldn't necessarily know uh, right. how we work it out, but they, you know it's not the, the language that they're used to hearing. So that does have to become a factor and you almost have to check yourself. You almost don't want to get too familiar with these terms during this particular role. Yeah, If, if I was out in America working for one of the clubs, for example, it would be a, a different story. But uh, maintaining that uh, the, the thought of the audience and, and what they want to listen to, what they're used to hearing, is key, I think, in in this respect. So again, it's it's about getting the balance right. You want to introduce certain terms so they have that knowledge, but you don't want to confuse them or or to um, almost patronise them in a way because they're, they're used to watching football in a certain way and hearing certain language when describing it. And yes, it's a, it's a different league, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the commentator should be using different terms. If you see what I mean? Yes, that's it's something I've found quite interesting myself. Um, Sort of when I've been listening to more international feeds, or say lis- listening to um, the the commentary over in America when I've been covering a game. Say you happen across say John Champion just happens to be with Tyler Twelman on um on on a game, and you can sort of hear John talking his his very sort of English football sort of terms, and then you then you'll hear Tyler sort of coming coming in with his very sort of <laughs> a, a very different term for the for the same thing and. From a, from a journalistic standpoint, I suppose for me personally, it's it's kind of tailoring things for the outlets that I'm writing for. Obviously, I do a lot of MLS stuff for WFI, and it's an English-based website. But I know that the MLS content has quite a few American readers, so I'll often write roster, as you say, and then the next day I'll be working for Squawker. I'll type out roster, and I'll go, no, that's wrong. Delete that. What's <laughs> Yeah, I find as a as a writer, that's something I often sort of 
I'll fire out a 1,500-word piece of squawk, I look back and I'm like, I do not sound like I'm talking about Everton here at all. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's something, as a, as a journalist, I find, I find quite interesting. And also just, just someone sat at home with, like say, like you say, if, if I happen across you on Sky, it'll be a certain tone. If I happen to come into John Champion over in America and he's with an American co-commentator, there's quite an interesting dynamic at play. As the American who is going to assess you guys' opinion on this matter, one thing that I've that I've found when when considering this question pre-podcast, because I knew Chris was definitely going to have something to say about this, is that as an as an American who up until very recently primarily focused on European soccer rather than the MLS, uh, but but also you know ha- having previously been a huge fan of the NFL, uh, having dabbled in basketball, these sorts of things, um, I. I find it easier to hear the 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 English or the the German or the the European way of talking about you know things like squad building or or, or hearing things in, in in relation to how many pounds were spent on a player rather than dollars. I, I find it easier to to hear that rather than than read it. And again, this could be a very very me personally thing, but for whatever reason, if I hear if I hear Phil say center back, I know without a doubt that Phil is spelling that C E N T R E, <laughs> but it doesn't bother me. Whereas if Chris were to ever write C E N T R E, I would have a cow about it. I'd think it was, a, <laughs> I would think it was a typo. So it's, it's, it's interesting that you guys both focus on that pretty firmly without necessarily taking it so far that you, that you stick to one version or the other, not only because of the work that you do, but also because it's, it's important to, to be to be relatable to who you're talking to, and 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 that that to me is a is an interesting way of looking at the splitting the two different hats, so to speak. Yeah, I think that that is the the key factor that that needs to be um, borne in mind in this instance is is the audience. But equally, you know, we we are covering MLS, so you need to be authentic and you need to reflect that. Again, with, with so many of these things, I've used the term before. It, it's about getting. The balance, right? I don't think you can go too far, but you do need to reflect the authenticity uh, of the language and, and the fact that MLS is very different in a number of respects to, to European football or, or soccer. <laughs> Again, it, it comes down to is it football, is it soccer? Um, it kind of that basic, isn't it? But you do need to reflect that, but you also need to to bear in mind very much, as we say, who is listening to this. Uh, and my approach, as I mentioned, would differ. I think if I was doing it in America for an American audience. Uh, for an international audience, then you certainly have to tailor it, yeah. Well, I guess the last question that I have on on this particular topic before we move on to some of the other things that we I, I know we want to talk about is because you're commentating live and because you're commentating live for media outlets like Sky Sports where it's MLS matches – for folks in England or or for folks of you know uh, across the pond in in one way or another talk to me about that late night fan base and one of the main reasons that I ask is is that I for about 6 months in 2016 I was I was a massive fan of Australian football I cannot tell you how it works. I cannot tell you how the game is played, but it was incredibly exciting. And and, and for that six months, I truly considered myself to be a fan of it. But at the same time, three and a half years later, I'm completely disengaged with it. And it's just this little side story in the in the Dylan Baker narrative. So for that late night fan base in, in the UK, do you find them to be 
as engaged as as regularly scheduled hours viewers of the Premier League? Are, are, are they kind of in a league of their own in, in terms of that engagement? Or for the most part, do you find that you, you tend to be really engaging as a commentator with mostly night owls where, where none of the primetime television is on anymore? I would kind of put the, the audience that we have into two very different categories, actually. It's more a, a, a general feeling that, that I had from, from doing this job and, and from you know, interacting with some of, of the listeners and, and the feedback that we get. And also the, you know, the viewing figures I'm led to believe that at Sky for the MLS games are, are pretty decent, which is why they've been doing them for the last five, five or six years now. But in terms of, of the type of people that are listening, I would put them in two camps. One is the, the hardcore MLS fan for, you know, whatever reason and, and the reasons that they, um, they they love watching these games can be quite diverse, but they will tune in pretty much every week, whatever game is being shown, they will watch it uh, and they will know all about uh, the league, the teams, uh, you know, um, they'll be as knowledgeable really as uh, as we are as commentators. And I mentioned before the challenges to, to be able to match that, but then you will have, and I would put this group as a slightly bigger, people who are just watching it because the football's on. Um, and, yeah. and maybe, you know, they've, they've got home from the pub, probably less so in the current climate, I guess, with the, some of the uh, the earlier closing times or uh, not being open at all. But generally, over the years, they will come in after closing time, sit down uh, and want to watch a game. And at the moment, earlier in the day, of course, certainly here in the UK right now, it, it's pretty much wall-to-wall football because every Premier League game has been shown live so it might not be as much of an issue now but the kickoff times work it in that favor they will want to watch a game they won't necessarily know too much about who's playing um the game might not even hold their attention for too long it could be just channel hopping and, and stumble across it our job is to to make it interesting aided by the players of course to, to ensure that they do stay in and watch and then maybe watch another one but i think that the kickoff time in that respect does help um, then nobody makes any pretense otherwise that that is a big part of the reason for getting the figures that we get because there is football on at that time of day and it's for that audience you know that we we also have to cater in particular where you can explain the designated player system you can explain um you know the, the playoff format for this year without being too um, patronizing to the uh, the other group, the other set of supporters who know all of that, of course, don't need to be told that. But I do think you have to, to bear in mind that the majority of, of fans watching these particular games at, at this particular time won't know things like that. And it will aid their understanding of the game and, uh, and hopefully grow their interest. So it, it's about providing for both. But I, I do think there's, there's two very different camps in terms of who we're broadcasting to. Yeah, some, something I've found really interesting, um, as you say, there, there's, there's sort of those... Um, I mean, I'm going to put myself in as that night owl category. We'll just sit up and watch the MLS games. Doesn't I, I'm personally, obviously, I follow Atlanta, but if it's FC Dallas versus Sporting KC, I'll watch it. It's fine for me. But something I've found from a, a journalistic perspective is, um, and this this goes for both the English audience, to be honest, and the American audience, is MLS is very much a niche in both countries, um, and it's appealing mm-hmm. to... I find specific football slash soccer fans, um, whereas say the Premier League could probably rope in a few layman supporters who don't really follow a particular club. They just like certain players or, you know, it's the Premier League, so they'll watch it. Something I've found, and 
earlier early in my career sort of covering it, I, I sort of fell victim to it really was you, you're writing to an audience that knows the stuff and and if if they disagree with something and if you plainly got something wrong, they're very quick to call you out on it. On the flip side, I think they're very grateful for sort of some some measured coverage and some sort of rational coverage and a, a detailed analysis. And that's something I've found it's like it's finding a balance basically, making sure that you've you've got your back covered. And I feel like that that seems to apply a lot more with MLS. You seem to be a lot more under the microscope. Whereas writing for a Premier League audience, if I say give a certain Man United player a bad rating, whether he played bad or not, I'm just going to get slated for it. Whereas with, with yeah. MLS, it seems a lot more a lot more rational. Well, and one thing that I want to speak to for this, and I'll I'll put this to both of you because you, you're both going to have differing experiences with this. But Chris, since you had spoken to it first, I'll I'll come back to you first. One of the things that I've found as an American who grew up in the NFL world and then shifted about six or seven years ago to the to the soccer world, and I've really not turned back since. I was listening to. Dave Hendrick, and I think his second episode in the the Two Footed podcast, which is worth a follow for anybody who's interested in in daily Premier League news. But uh, at any rate, he his second episode he focused a lot on on tribalism, and I feel American tribalism and UK tribalism are very different. And and one of the best ways to analyze that is is looking at the social media. If you look at if you look at football Twitter, as they call it. You run into an issue of you've got one guy who's running six or seven different accounts, uh, as we'll say, as a, as a Manchester United fan or as an Arsenal fan. And the whole point of those different accounts is to be a different personality about Arsenal. And sometimes it's, it's trolling and sometimes it's not. But, uh, you know, when you multiply that across all of the social media users that you encounter, uh, you end up with this with this massive troll environment that you find yourself within where it's it, it, the whole point of posting under a, a certain accounts or, or a singular account is is to draw reaction and that's foreign to me in terms of being 28 years old and only having spent six or seven years following football because uh, Americans absolutely have tribalism. I, I, I'm a I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan in the NFL and I come from a family of Chicago Bears fans so I'm a black sheep in a lot of different ways and and one of the things that I found about American tribalism is that it does like you said Chris come with that sort of rationality of I want to defend only my NFL team. I don't want to defend almost anybody else's NFL team, especially if mine is under attack. But it, it comes from a standpoint of we've had stats around the NFL for a lot longer than, the, for instance, the Premier League has. So there's a lot of different background information that you can pull from in order to in order to gain that that sense of rationality. And, and, and again, that's not to say that there's not rationality in the Premier League or in the UK, because there absolutely is. But it seems like that that tribalism aspect of sports social media environment is very, very different. And, and Chris, especially uh, since you had spoken about that in terms of the MLS and, and, you know, you have come to the MLS and instantly attached yourself to Atlanta United. And what's funny about that is, is that uh, like Phil said, you, you you run into a lot of folks who may not necessarily have any affiliation at all. They just like certain players or they like, they like football in general. You came over and immediately attached yourself to Atlanta United because that's, that's kind of what 
we do here and whether you did that consciously or unconsciously is is an interesting thread to go down so so talk to me about the differing kinds of tribalism and uh in your in your individual journalistic career paths broadcasting career paths uh media career paths how that how that varies for you uh, I mean, my my personal experience of it, to be to be honest, is um, I mean, everyone's going to have their own their own unique experience, especially as as people use social media for their own different ways. Um, I personally use it as a hill to die on. I'm going to put myself out there to be shot at, and if I get hit, then that that's that. Uh, I've been called some horrible names, but that comes with the job. <laughs> but my my personal experience of it um, is very much. <sighs> I've come across the odd Orlando fan as 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 a a journalist who, yeah, I cover the whole league, but I, I, maybe yeah, I do tend to lean on Atlanta a little bit more, and that's bound to happen. But generally speaking, I find that most fans in MLS are more concerned about their own club doing well. Uh, whether I've missed something on on MLS Twitter, I don't know, but that's my general experience of it. If I if I post an article say about Atlanta. It will connect with Atlanta fans, um, and you generally don't tend to get many other fans coming in and sort of trolling. Uh, and the same goes for, say, if I if I do a, an article on say Brendan Aronson at, at Philadelphia, um, I'll I'll mainly connect with Philadelphia fans, and then the odd sort of United States fan, so to say. Um, whereas over here, if, if I write a feature, say on say, Everton's new midfield, which I did for Squawker a couple of weeks ago, if I post that on social media, I'll probably get a Liverpool fan and a United fan telling me how small of a club Everton are. Um, and mm. you just seem to get that reaction regardless. That's the to me, tends to be a, the main difference between the two is that the American audience seems to be more inwardly focused on their own club. I personally think that's a positive, but everyone's got their own opinions on it. I'm sure Phil will, will probably tell me something different. No, I, I would probably tend to agree with that, actually. I, I think there is a real passion from the American fans towards their own teams, that, in my experience, without kind of crossing over into the animosity for, for their rivals. And it's not to say that there isn't rivalry. And I, I know MLS puts a lot of emphasis on the, the rivalry games to try and build those up. But that's something I think that has to come organically and takes an awful long time because... These rivalries in the, in the Premier League, for example, are historic ones that have built up over generations and generations. And of course, MLS celebrating 25 years this year it is still in its infancy in that respect in doing so. So there are, I think, certain exceptions to this and certain fixtures where you do get that edge. But generally, it is much more about just wanting your own team to do well and not really caring too much about anybody else. And as Chris says, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's quite refreshing in a way. But you do equally, when the when the rivals come together in, in these big derby matches, for example, you do need that little bit of edge. I think it's difficult in the current climate without too many supporters uh, in the ground. But, but even then, you will see them mixing pretty happily, both just wanting their own team to do well. Uh, and I, I do actually enjoy seeing that. It's very different to, to what we're used to in England, it doesn't mean one way is, is right and the other way is wrong. It, it's just a, a different culture, I think. And although these examples are fairly general ones, and, and there are, uh, as I mentioned, exceptions, there is to, to every sort of rule, really. Uh, I, I do think that is the way that I perceive it, looking on almost from a, from a certain distance. Um, and you'll get MLS supporters at different clubs in the same family. Um, 
that happens in this country as well. Um, but, but there isn't that same sort of rivalry. They'll all go to the game together. They'll have a great time, a great day out. And it's more about maybe the occasion as well, the actual events, than it is perhaps what happens on the field. And everybody will will go home in similar sort of spirits, which, which doesn't happen um, in the Premier League in English football. So it's different. But uh, yeah, it's... Um, doesn't mean one way is better than the other. And I, I do like to see that the passion that the American fans have for their club. And in a way, you, you should argue that's the way it should be. Why, why worry about what anybody else is doing? Focus on, on your own team. I, I do really enjoy that side of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I grew up as, a, as an Everton fan. So obviously I've, I've undergone all the rigours of, of a Merseyside derby. And on the blue side of that, it's not been a fun experience, but it's a very <laughs> unique experience. It's a very unique experience. Um from from someone similar to yourself looking over from the UK, um, I'm sure my perspective will change when I do move over stateside in a, in a couple of years if, if all goes to plan. But for, from looking over from this side of things, the, the closest rivalries to a European rivalry that I've seen so far are probably the, the LA one between LAFC and LA Galaxy, yeah. and then probably Cascadia between Portland and Seattle. I think. I think Portland Timbers generate a great atmosphere. I think those two seem to be the standout ones for me. I'm not sure what your experience has been of that covering it as a commentator. Certainly, the yeah, the Cascadia Cup clashes, the the Portland Seattle, I think comes closest to that historic rivalry that I was talking about because, of course, it, it predates MLS, doesn't it? Those two sides, and there is definitely that edge where when those two get together, and it, it does make a difference in terms of. The atmosphere in it, in terms of what it means, I, I would still argue that those supporters are still more focused on their own sides than than the opposition. But there is definitely that uh, that extra little bit of spice to a game such as that, and I, I think in years to come that will very much be the case uh, in LA. Um, it seems to have happened. I was going to say organically, it, not necessarily sure that that's the right term because when LAFC came about, when they were granted the franchise, became the second club in the area. I think it was a very definite attempt to create that rivalry uh, and it helped didn't it with the way that it started that remarkable um, Zlatan game the incredible comeback which goes down in folklore and sets the standard for that rivalry but the fact as well that LAFC have come in and done so well so quickly whereas Galaxy traditionally the the storied side the most successful historically in MLS now have this new rival on their, their doorstep, it's, it's all part of, of the narrative. And, and that particular rivalry has a little bit of everything. But historically, Portland-Seattle is the one. And I think you're right to, to highlight those two. For, for me, they are the two, really, in this league. New York, you would expect to be something similar. I don't think that's quite happened to the extent of, of LA in, in the Hudson River derby. There's been some very memorable meetings between the two of them. They don't seem to quite have that same sort of edge to me at the moment. Uh, I did the Rocky Mountain Cup clash uh, last weekend, actually, which had been a very one-sided affair in recent years, which maybe had taken the edge off that a little bit. You do wonder now if the manner in which Colorado won at Ralph Salt Lake last week uh, will change that. And, uh, you know, that might become a little bit more relevant again now. And also in the current situation in MLS, you've got so many of these rivalry games because of the restrictions on travel, teams having to play in the local market. It does look like that is opening up and, and changing a little bit between now and, and the end of, of the regular season. But certainly Inter-Miami and, and Orlando at the start of their rivalry 
in Florida seem to be playing each other almost every other week, don't they? Um, Atlanta, Orlando, I, I think is another that has developed a bit of an edge for various reasons, despite being a pretty one-sided and, until this season. But what, what you need to do here is just give it time. Uh, as the seasons go by, as the clubs meet more and more often, it is going to um, develop organically, this rivalry. It is going to continue to, to build and build certain cases more than others Maybe the fans will still come at it from a, a different viewpoint, but as time goes on, it will mean more and more. And that's all it needs. And, and MLS is going in that direction. And, and the more clubs that come into the league, the more fixtures like this they're going to they're going to be. And it just adds to to the history. It adds to the narrative of the league. And the more rivalries there are, I think, the better it, in terms of telling the story and in terms of piquing the interest locally, but importantly as well from a neutral point of view, because these are the games, these are the, the stories that people want to hear about and want to see. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned the the rivalry side of things, things as well, because the rivalries in American sports are, they're so crucial, I think, to focalizing where a lot of the I guess for for lack of a better phrase, the the antagonizing uh, it it, it kind of narrows down who and how we antagonize. The, the Chicago Bears and the NFL have been rivals with the Green Bay Packers since the 1920s, back when the Chicago Bears were the the the, the Chicago Staleys, I believe, uh, which I still don't know what a Staley is, but that is you know that's a conversation for another day. Uh, and what what's unique about the MLS being in its infancy and, and more specifically when you combine that with uh, one of the things that you said was that the organically may not necessarily be the right word, but then you used it a couple extra times. And I think that that's right on right on on note with with how we do things, because it is sort of organic. If you look at baseball, if you look at basketball, if you look at the NFL, we we look for those rivalries every single time anybody attaches themselves to a different team or, you know, specifically with the MLS as, as teams are starting to, you know, as these expansion teams continue rolling in, you know, FC Cincinnati fans, when that team had first been agreed that it was going to be allowed to be an expansion team, everybody that, was an FC Cincinnati fan simply based on location was immediately excited about that first derby with the with Columbus Crew and, and you had mentioned the uh, the the Los Angeles rivalry as well uh, so it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it is it is unique to to the American way because we we look to do that almost immediately and I think that that does save in American sports a lot of the extra trolling of uh, of other teams you don't find you know you don't find anybody in the mls calling another mls team you know a a, a a small team or if you're in vancouver you don't really for the most part have to worry a whole heck of a lot about getting getting cut any slack from a chicago fire or an nycfc fan because you're just another team in the league you're not a rival yeah i, th- I think the um one of the obviously one of the big obvious factors in in the states is is the sheer distance as well and speaking from experience from the Merseyside derby over here, you lose against Liverpool and the, the next morning you, you're going to probably go to work with a Liverpool fan. And that is just, it's just hell if you've lost. And it's just, you're just having a bad, well, a bad week, to be honest. Not just a bad day, a bad week, and if not longer than that. Whereas I would say, if, say as, a, as an Atlanta fan, if you, if you lose against Orlando, even if I was living in Atlanta, I'd simply have to say shut Twitter off for a couple of days and I probably wouldn't hear off them. So the rivalry is very different. I think that might be part of why it focuses so much 
inwardly on, on your own club. Um, but as Phil alluded to before, the, the more you get these sort of organic rivalries coming up, say, you know, the, the early meetings between Columbus Crew and FC Cincinnati have, have had plenty of spice to them already. Um, we, we mentioned LA before, we mentioned Cascadia. Uh, you're hoping that the Hudson River Derby can, can follow that trend. The more you get that, the more I think it brings more prestige to the league as well because you you start getting those. I find MLS has got a good atmosphere at most games anyway, but I think once these organic rivalries start taking off, it, it adds that sort of intensity which makes it feel like a real big occasion. Yeah, it, it, it definitely does. And as I say, that will come with time. And what will come as well is reflecting on previous meetings. You know, if you've had a, a big flashpoint if you've had a, a dramatic comeback, the next time you play, you're going to want to turn the tables. Uh, but balanced with that, and I know it, it's currently down to circumstances beyond anybody's control, but it does seem as if a lot of these teams are, are playing each other almost every other week right now. And you do need to be able to, to build it up as an occasion that happens twice a season. And if you do lose one, you have a, you know, a, a painful weight to try and put it right. And, uh, of course, this season is a season that nobody could have predicted. And I think the league are doing a wonderful job in being able to piece together any sort of a, a regular season, really. So you would have to cut them a lot of slack in this situation. But it kind of dilutes a little bit from that rivalry if it is commonplace. What it needs and what it always has been in the past, you get your fixture list, you see when are we playing our, our local rivals? When are we playing our, our big, you know... Uh, rivals from previous seasons. Those are the dates in the calendar if, that you get up for. If it doesn't go your way, you then, as I say, you, you have to wait for the chance to put it right, which isn't currently the case. But but longer term, those are the fixtures which do build the history of the rivalry. And you remember that time where you conceded a, a goal from 3-0 up to at least 4-3 right at the end. Uh, and it, it becomes part of the story. And you build that story year by year, chapter by chapter, and and it just always, I think, increases the edge when when the two teams get together. And the fact that there are so many of these rivalries now, and they are all building, you think, well, how far MLS has come in its first 25 years? If we go forward another 25 years, who knows where this league could be? There is so much potential there. And this is a big part of it, I think. Well, and speaking to that very specifically, I, I do want to I do want to shift you um, into an opinion. This is the sixth year that you've been covering the MLS as a commentator. How has the league changed during your time covering it? I think the quality has improved considerably already, um, and I think it will continue to uh, to improve. Uh, as to a point, has the perception. Certainly in, in this country, go back a, a few years to, to the point when I started covering the league, everybody kind of saw it as a place where the big name players would come for, for one last payday um, and not necessarily be overly invested in, in what happens as long as they enjoy a comfortable lifestyle and, and they make a bit of money at the end of a successful career. I think we're seeing that less and less often now. In fact, it, there are very, very few cases where um, you could even argue that, that that is happening. We're still getting some of the big names coming, and I think that's important, and there's a place for them, of course, and it raises the profile of the league, and they're coming at a, a point where they still have plenty to offer, and the big names have been successful. 
Zlatan was great, wasn't he? Box office for for a couple of seasons. I think Wayne Rooney was fun to watch in what was otherwise a pretty ordinary DC side. He elevated them uh, to become playoff contenders for a, for a little while, and and now that he's gone, they're they're struggling again without him. So those players have a, a place certainly. Uh, and in those examples, the likes of Zlatan and, and Rooney weren't just here for the payday. They came and they contributed and uh, and they played a, a part in raising the profile and also the quality of the league. But what we're seeing now is, is I think, so many more clubs investing in their own. The, the academy system, which I know has been shaken up recently across MLS, which to get everybody under the same umbrella, I think, is, is a big help in going in the right direction. And we're seeing more and more teams now uh, fielding these homegrown players. There were certain sides, Dallas being an example, who generally had, had had a reputation for doing that. I think more and more now are, are seeing the the importance of following that sort of model and bringing through their own. But it's not just bringing young players through and playing homegrown players for the sake of it. They're, they're getting opportunities because they're good enough. And I think the standard of the young players coming through the ranks at the clubs has been noticeably different over the last few years and, and improving all the time. There's always been odd examples of players capable of making that step up, but I think there are so many more of them right now. And, and those that are at the top of that list are, um, you know, of the highest quality who will go on and, and have huge careers in the game. So the perception, I think, now of the league is not some, uh, uh, somewhere that players go for one last payday. It's now become possibly more of a selling league, which is the next step along the line. And I think the league themselves have acknowledged this. They, they want to bring players through and prove that it can be part of a career path for them, that moving to MLS is, is good for their career. And they'll go on and they'll get a big move to Europe if they do well. And then the next step beyond that, of course, is to become the ultimate destination where everybody at the peak of their powers wants to play. Not there yet. Of course, they won't be um, for quite some time. I think generally there is every chance that they will get there. Uh, we've seen more and more of the, the South American younger talent coming through to uh, enhance their careers, to follow that pathway that I was talking about. But even within the last year or so, I think generally there has been more big name players moving from, from Mexico, from Liga MX to MLS than the other way around. And it has always been the other way around until now. And I think there's been a significant shift in that respect as well. So the status of the league is growing because of that going hand in hand with it. I think the standard of the league is improving. It's always been an attractive place to go to go and play football. But now the competitive nature of, of the league, uh, it does present different challenges to players, of course, the different time zones, the amount of travelling generally that is involved. It's, it can be a hectic schedule. It can be difficult, uh, certainly for players that are used to playing in Europe, to get their heads around that sort of thing. And not everybody is able to adapt, but it, it's, it's an appealing prospect. It's getting more so and as more and more of these top players come in, the, the, the overall standard of the league increases. I think the standard of coaching has increased. I think there's some, some excellent coaches in, in MLS. And really interested to see how Jesse March did when he moved on to Europe. They did a fabulous job at Salzburg, taking them into, into the Champions League, flying the flag, I think, in that respect for American coaches. And the standard of that coaching is reflected in the standard of the young players coming through. So for me, that would be the main thing. Uh, and, and it's all very positive. It's all moved significantly in the right direction in the five or six years that, that I've been covering it. Yeah, I think to sort of echo your opinion there, and then I'm not quite been I've not been covering the league quite as long as you have, but the, the biggest thing that sticks out to me is as has been interesting is that it's the perception sort of across the world, and obviously specifically in England where we are. Um, 
I'll admit, before I started covering the league in depth and before I really started getting attached to it, I was very, not so much dismissive or I didn't ridicule the league. It was just like I, I, I went along with the same perception of just, just the old guys going over there, getting a payday, nothing much going on. But it's only when you sort of really go down that rabbit hole that you realise how hard MLS as a league, as sort of the United States as a footballing nation are, are working to to improve the standard um, from, from youth right right upwards. And, and sort of, as Don Garber has said himself, um, they, they'd like to start becoming a selling league rather, rather than a retirement home. Uh, obviously, you've got sort of what you would regard as trailblazers over in Europe now. It's Alfonso Davis just, just winning the Champions League with Bayern. You had Tyler Adams in the semi-final. You've got Miguel Almiron over there in uh, Newcastle United. You know, he's been on the bench at the start of this season. God knows why, but last season was <laughs> arguably Newcastle's best player. So there are trailblazers. I think what's interesting is below that you've got sort of Chris Richards is there at Bayern Munich starting to make his way, having not really done much in the first team with FC Dallas, but doing enough at a youth level to get picked up by such a big club. And the same happened with Weston McKenney. Joe Scally's going over soon from from NYCFC. And I think it's only a matter of time before you see the likes of Brendan Aronson going. So you're getting some some talents coming through now that haven't necessarily sort of made the mark on MLS. But it's clear to see that these big clubs are taking a massive interest in this North American talent and they're and the scouting right at the youth level now, which I think is really interesting. And it just emphasises, doesn't it, Chris, the, as I was talking about, the, the standard of coaching in the academy, the quality of players coming through, which we weren't getting certainly to the same extent, the same numbers in recent years. And you're right, some of them do make the move to, to Europe very, very early on. You know, Weston McKinney was at Dallas in the academy, wasn't he, for about seven years, but moved on before uh, getting uh, getting near the first team. I, I think you're right to to highlight Brendan Aronson as well, because for me, he is going to be the, the next big deal. I, I covered the, the Union game against the Red Bulls a few weeks ago. He was absolutely brilliant, scored a wonderful goal, but just that the quality on the ball, off the ball, the, the movement, he just looked like he had a little bit of everything and you know, still a very, very young man at the start of his career. But so many clubs, from from what we understand, interested in signing him. He's going to have a really big decision to make uh, as to where he goes and when he goes because it is only a matter of time. And it's great to see players like him coming through. And uh, and the example that you, that you talked about, Alfonso Davis, has done brilliantly, hasn't he? And he's right up there as one of the rising stars in the, the European game now. So the, the more moves like that that happen, the more that the players currently in the academy system looking for, for idols and, and inspiration have a realistic path to follow. And I, I really think that is only going to continue and the, and the standard of players is only going to get better. Yeah, 100%. And I think by virtue of, of that pathway opening up and the more success those players have, that's where then... Sort of the, the dominoes start to form and the fan perspective sort of changes and, and perhaps you'll get sort of European fans taking the league more seriously in turn when they see all that talent coming out and really not just filling a, a talking a European term, not just filling a place in the squad, but also making a real mark. Well, folks, for for time purposes only, because this has been one of my favorite podcasts that I've been on with the North American Soccer Show to date. 
we are going to go ahead and close out here. Um, Phil, let me start with you. Um, talk to me about where we can find you. Uh, I, I know we detailed a lot of the different uh, places that we can find you um, uh, from an overarching standpoint, but for the next week or so, uh, uh, tell us what sorts of games you're going to be uh, commentating on as well as where we can find you on Twitter, these sorts of things. Yeah, at Phil Blacker on on Twitter. Busy week coming up, actually, on uh, into Miami GT, I think, for, for the next couple of games. Obviously, <laughs> the David Beckham factor increases the the appeal uh, and they're often selected for, for coverage over here. So the, the next game I've got is the midweek game against the uh, the New York Red Bulls. Um, back in action with uh, Miami, I think, the following weekend as well. And, and prior to that, on uh, Premier League GT for the, the international audience, Premier League Productions cover all of, of the games live around the world at the moment. And I'll be at the London Stadium, West Ham Walls, next Sunday is my, uh, my next Premier League game. Um, a little bit of radio to, to fit in it as well. Uh, and a, a Dutch Eredivisie game. Shouldn't forget that on on Saturday, our first uh, Dutch game of, of the new season, which started the other week. So a busy one coming up. Chris, as always, uh, where can we find you on Twitter? What can we expect from you this week? Um, I'm sure there's going to be quite a bit on WFI. Yeah, um, I, you can find me on Twitter at cjsmith91. Um, obviously, I'll be tuned into the Atlanta game this week against FC Dallas. It'll, it'll be nice to see them come up against a different opposition start getting punished by uh, Inter Miami and Orlando. Um, following that, I'm just going to try and take in as many other MLS games as I can. And i got a couple of interesting interviews coming up with uh, Canadian Premier League players and a couple of Americans as well. So some, some interesting stuff in the pipeline. Wonderful. And just before we go, I do want to give a quick shout out to World Football Index's Patreon. WFI prides itself on bringing you our content absolutely free and for being ad free throughout the process. And we will continue to do so to provide the best user experience to our readers and listeners. If you like what we're doing and hearing and want to help us keep bringing you that content, feel free to join as a patron on Patreon. You can contribute $3 a month and feel warm and cozy knowing that you're a major part of World Football Index at $6 a month. However, you gain access to our special Colombian Spotlight series that goes in-depth with Simon Edwards from inside the country, as well as at least two extra WFI episodes a month. You'll also gain access to Football City guides that cover the culture and environment of a South American city and just how intertwined football is with it. Go to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash World Football Index to find out more. I've been your host, Dylan Baker. You can find me on Twitter at D-L-N underscore B-K-R. And this has been your North American Soccer Show. We will see you next week.